Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Mondale Robinson. Mondale is the founder and principal of Black Male Voter Project, an organization dedicated to overcoming systemic disenfranchisement of Black voters and Black men in particular. Currently in the U.S., listen to this, about half, half of Black men who are registered to vote have not done so in the last five years consecutive elections. When it comes to identifying as Democrats, black men are less likely to do so than black women, 77% to 87%. History and data reveals every election, black voters have increasing power in Democratic primaries. In fact, black voters make up about 20% of all Democratic voters. Because people have not prioritized the needs and ideas and issues that are important to black men, it just seems like this year is extremely important. I would argue that black men participating in the election is better for everybody. What's good? I'm Wendell Robinson. I am fighting for black men's visibility as it pertains to electoral politics. Sorry, not sorry. Mondale, thank you so much for being here with us on Sorry Not Sorry. As you know, I support pretty much everything that you stand for, everything that you do. So to have you on the podcast is really special for me. And I want to talk a lot about Black Male Voter Project. But to get there, I want to start by talking a bit about you. I did some research and I understand that you grew up as one of 13 kids in North Carolina. Tell us a bit about that and how it shaped the man you are today. That's a wonderful place to begin because not only is it my beginning, but it's also the root of why I do what I do at Black Male Voter Project, my childhood I'm talking about. I'm from a small town in North Carolina that most people probably never heard of. The name of it is Enfield. It's on the eastern part of the state of Virginia border than any major city in North Carolina. And growing up in extremely rural population, poverty was a thing. More than my entire life, majority of the county, Halifax County, was poor, below the poverty line. Majority of the county was unemployed. Still now, I think the population is 50% unemployed in that town. And it's a town of about 2,000 people. So what happened was a couple things. First, my dad's life story had a crazy impact on all 13 of us, but me, for sure. And part of that is because my father grew up the son of a sharecropper and had to stop school in the third grade. And because he stopped doing third grade, so as to save the plantation, they call it a farm, but it was a plantation, meaning he was more valuable to his family working on that farm than going to school. And one of the farmer's children grew up with my dad. And when they were teenagers, that kid smacked my grandmother and my father reacted. And when my father reacted, he got a felony conviction. Nothing happened to the white kid that smacked my grandmother. That became the beginning of my life, even before I was born, because my dad was 17 at the time and I came when he was 30, but it shaped his life. That felony conviction prevented my dad from doing a lot of things. I felt like my father was one of the greatest men that ever lived. I'm biased, of course, but that felony conviction followed him even to fatherhood and prevented him from doing a lot of things and being available to do a lot of things. And it affected how we grew up poor. My 12 siblings and I, extremely poor, coupled with the fact that North Carolina is just a racist ass state excuse my French. And what happened was when I saw was being the middle child, 
I saw something that a lot of my siblings missed. And I think part of that is because I was able to escape at night when out in the streets. I realized that my father was not an anomaly. He was the norm for men his age. So many Black men had that same story. So many Black men had been affected by a racist criminal justice system that caused their lives to be stunted in a way that it affected generations after them. So what I began to do was stop asking my parents for anything when I was 15. And when I did that, I grew up in an era, I'm 42, as of yesterday, I turned 42. I grew up in an era where you recycle bottles for money and cans. So I would go dumpster diving to get bottles and cans to help my mom and dad pay bills because there was so many and we didn't have a lot. And one time I was in the trash can, I found a book, The Souls of Black Folk by W. DeBose. And when I found that book, I read it so many times and I was like, oh, hell, this is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be a race man. Someone considering how they can use their life, their resources, their experience to better Black people, to make the life of Black people easier. Of course, as I reread that book so often, I know at 14, 15, I didn't know shit about what Debbie DeBose was talking about, truly. But I did know that I had a role to play, and it wasn't just bringing kids in this world. It was actually to change this world, to make it more equitable for people. My siblings are important to me because they all have a lot of kids, like my parents did. And it gave me space to not have to worry about my mom and dad asking me about kids or having kids, but I can do this work. So my work is also the work of my siblings as well. I have so many questions for you, but I think on this issue of growing up poor and being impoverished, do you think that we need to shift how we discuss poverty in this country? I feel like we are missing the emotional impact when we tell these stories, which you just obviously told the emotional impact of your life. But I think we need to start really talking about poverty as trauma and really what that means for generations to come who have to try to fight their way out of that cyclical place that we just seem to not be able to, as a country, figure out how to get out of. And I'm wondering if you can just share any insight on how we talk about poverty. Honestly, sis, I got to be honest. I don't think we talk about poverty in a way that's real or beneficial to folk that are suffering from it. If we are honest, our politics is not about poverty. It's about middle class. Everybody's talking about the middle class family as if that even exists in this country. We had this idea of the middle class as this solid thing, and now it's a shaky thing. We also had this idea in the middle of the 20th century of it as a humdrum, boring thing that we wanted to escape, kind of like Revolutionary Road, Richard Yates. And, and now it's like everyone just wants to get into it, into the dream, the American dream of the middle class that's now, now so unstable. We are extreme to the point that we are, I mean, when I say extreme, we mean the have and the have-nots. I mean, we're on public Brazil if you consider the have and have nots in this country. And I think we never talk about it. You're absolutely right. We need to shift the conversation. We never talk about poverty as a policy issue. We always talk about the poor people shifting the blame as if there's a way to cure it by giving someone a job. A job is not to cure the poverty. Policy is to cure the poverty. No one in this country that has so many resources should be poor, should go without. And we consider the effect poverty has on people, kids, and generations, it is absolutely a trauma issue. It's PTSD. We don't talk about the effects that when people don't have their basic needs met, they're making life and death decisions every day, and they can't think about anything else. And that, to me, is trauma, that if you can't make ends meet, you are living in a constant state of fight or flight. And I'm an ambassador for UNICEF. And when I think about the work that UNICEF does, it's basically to lift children out of child 
poverty throughout the world. And yet it seems like we have not been able to figure out, you know, and I say it a lot on this podcast. People have heard me say it. I say it a lot in every Zoom that I do where I'm fighting for something. There are 14 million children who don't have enough food to eat in this country. 14 million. And by the way, also 5.5 million senior citizens. How do we overcome that if we're not even talking about it? And so I think we really all collectively as a movement, and I know how hard it is to get us all on the same page, but I really feel like we need to start talking about this. I think for so long, white people, and you you and I have always been super honest with each other about shit, but I always feel like white people have had a hard time talking about black and brown people as being impoverished because they don't want to offend anyone. And it is these underserved communities that this poverty is just so cyclical. So how do we do it? I was having this conversation with someone and it seems abstract, but it's absolutely related about the need to abolish police. And they were saying, oh, don't talk about defund the police. We're not there. We need these conversations. We need police, blah, blah, blah. And I was telling people, if you imagine what enslaved people thought about the institution of slavery, the year that slavery ended, they probably thought it never would end. If we're not being serious about abolishing poverty, if we're not having those conversations on how we do it, the greatest minds in this country thinking on it, then we're not really seriously talking about addressing poverty because to address it is to acknowledge or to say that it's always be here. We need to figure out how we abolish poverty, not just here, but around the world. When you just said 14 million children didn't have enough in this country to eat, that scares me, especially when we saw how much money the richest people in this country made last year alone. These billionaires increased their net worth. During a pandemic where people were out of work, the richest people in this country just made a shitload of money, which is unfathomable. And the fact that someone like Jeff Bezos could literally go into pretty much every underserved community in this country and figure out a way to turn it around and chooses not to and chooses to pay his workers a less than livable wage under horrible circumstances, we've got to figure out how to fix that. Broad support for raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour with 61% of all respondents, that means Republicans are included in this uh, equation, in favor compared to 37% against. Support for $15 is unsurprisingly strongest among Democrats at 89%. However, 54% of independents and 39% of Republicans also favor the raise, um, which means that Kirsten Sinema, a Democratic senator from the state of Arizona, may have made a mistake in voting against a $15 an hour minimum wage in the coronavirus relief bill that just passed. And the nature of it, not only does he not pay his people, the government also subsidized some of those. And I'm not telling people that they shouldn't have access to government services, but the fact that some of these people need social welfare to survive is disgusting. You shouldn't be making a profit if your employees need social welfare to survive. Listen, if you're working three jobs or you're working 14 hours a day and you still can't pay the bills, we've got to do better. We got to do better.
So you mentioned defund the police a little bit, and this is another topic where I feel like it's an important topic. I think it's interesting that we're finally having this conversation in this country because it's a long time coming, but it's also a part of our movement that is at odds with each other. And it is, in my opinion, a lot of white people that are terrified of the idea of living in a world where there is no police. And so they use this idea that we're going to lose elections if we call for that. And really, I think it's just their discomfort. But also like their discomfort that there is a legitimate movement in this country that they didn't have a part in. I think freaks white people out as well. And so it's really hard for me to listen to a lot of the people on our side who talk about what they would do differently when it's like, dude, this is not your movement. Like, back the fuck up. Let's support our black leaders. Let's support the people who are closest to the pain in whatever they want in this journey for liberation. And it would be like someone saying to Tarana or any of the people who were instrumental in the Me Too movement, you know what, Me Too, it's too obscure. We don't understand what it means. You know what? Back up. It's not your movement. Mm -hmm. You're not the person who's going to tell survivors, any survivor of sexual assault, what this movement should be called and what we're fighting for. I agree. How do we bridge that divide? I do want to talk to you about this disconnect between Black activists and the activists who are working in the realm of anti-Semitism and how those two parts of our movement seem to be in conflict. I see it in a bunch of my activist friends. It really feels like people are fighting for who's more oppressed in this scenario, in this world, and that people can't connect the dots that... The oppressor is the same. Exactly. Not only is the oppressor the same, but what we're all fighting for is to eliminate a hierarchy. Whatever that hierarchy is, mm -hmm. whether it's misogyny, sexism, xenophobia, whatever. But there is such a conflict, I find, between Black activists and Jewish activists that are fighting basically for the same thing. And by the way, I really believe the bad guy is definitely the same now that QAnon has formed because they are the umbrella hate movement. It's no longer the neo-Nazis against the KKK, which are two very different fights, right? They just hate. They just hate. So how do we bridge that divide between the Black and the Jewish activists? I think those are extremely important conversations. And let me get to them, but I want to speak on it before the police before I forget the thought I was thinking. People are so confused about police departments. Police department has not always been a part of America. Police departments came about when slavery ended. They are rooted in white supremacy and racism. A New York Times article published in August of 2020 notes that confidence in law enforcement is at a record low, while calls for change have reached a fever pitch in the public consciousness. Ongoing protests erupted across the United States with international actions arising in solidarity. Videos posted on social media sites reveal what citizen protesters see as enduring law enforcement violence and extrajudicial killings of people in Black, Brown, and impoverished communities. In some camps, people have started to dismiss bad apple arguments that frame law enforcement abuses as individual aberrations. Instead, they point to historical precedents that are embedded in the very foundations of the institution of policing. 
And we have to acknowledge that. I'm from North Carolina. It's my home state. When North Carolina ended slavery, finally, there were two prisons in the entire state. This idea of prisons and policing was not a thing. The first police were not even funded by the government. They were funded by businesses to protect businesses. And in North Carolina, the first police department came from slave catchers, people that kidnapped Black bodies sometimes and brought them back to slavery, back being in air quotes, because some of those people were never enslaved at all. They just kidnapped bodies and say, here, now this person is a slave. That's not old history. Police is a new idea in this country. I think the problem with policing is deeper than just white people. There are some Black people that buy into the idea as well that we need police departments, when in actuality, defunding the police is all about rethinking how we spend community funds. Police departments are broken in this country. To believe anything else is to be asleep right now, to be asleep. Police in this country is not working. It's not deterring crime. It is not helping communities grow. It is not making communities heal. It's a bad idea to invest so much funding into it. We need to rethink about where that money can be better served, i.e. public education, i.e. mental health services, i.e. other things that alleviate crime way better than police, i.e. ending poverty. Abolishing poverty will end a lot of the crimes that we deal with in this country. And we're not talking about that in a way that makes sense. I feel like people are afraid of defunding the police because they're afraid to think about a reality that's different than the one that they live in right now. Also, it is a misnomer that people lose elections for talking about defunding the police. You actually increase our voice. The only people that are going to be turned off by this are people that are afraid of the reality that we live in, meaning Black people that are suffering from cops, brown people that are suffering from the oppression of cops. We saw this, but we didn't see candidates talking about defunding the police. Cory Bush won her election. Jamal Bowman won his election. Progressive ideas in Florida won the minimum wage in Florida won. When Milk Toast candidate was afraid to talk about progressive ideas, they lose. We saw that in Florida. That's just how you see progressive ideas like raising the minimum wage win at the ballot the same time you see Democrats lose seats. The Democrats that lost seats in Florida were not progressive candidates. So this idea that the status quo want us to believe that we can't talk about progressive things is BS. If you look at where this country is, not just with how people feel, our entire work at Black Male Voter Project is a progressive idea. The idea that Black men can be seen is a progressive idea. And it flies in the face of what people tell us our reality is. That leads me to your question about Black activists and anti-Semitic activists. I think the problem is, first, the term activist is overused. There's so many people that say shit that it seems like it's pro-Black, but it's not rooted in what our struggle is or has been. And the same is true for the anti-Semitic movement. And also we've allowed time to put space between them as if they were not joined before, as if we were not working in concert before. Because we don't understand that we have a similar past that say we should always be fighting in uniformity, that we shouldn't have a Black movement that is not rooted in ending misogyny, that is not rooted in any anti-Semitic behavior, that is not rooted in liberation of women and their bodies, that's not rooted in ending homophobic behaviors or trans hate, then it's not even really a fucking movement because guess what? There are Black, gay, Jewish people. You know what I'm saying? So like, yeah. you can't free Black people if people aren't free to be Jewish folk, if people aren't free to be gay, if people aren't free to be trans. So I think there's no true activist that is not fighting for all of those things. Because once you stop fighting for any of those things, you begin to become a little more like the oppressor. Mm, I just got goosebumps. Yes, thank you. I'm wondering what your early life taught you about obstacles to voting for Black people. 
I tell people all the time, my family is, was a pretty apolitical family. Now I scream so much that everybody votes. They're probably all super voters. My early life taught me a lot about obstacles to voting. And it wasn't the voter suppression that we hear about or that we're seeing right now. It was the voter suppression of hunger. Or I got to think about life. I got too much going on in life to consider going to voting because politics got us here and none of it has fixed any of what we're suffering from. Miles Harris is a senior at Fisk University and says he sometimes feels ignored by politicians. I don't feel like anybody has really just came out and took an extremely strong position to not only protect African-Americans, but to progress African-Americans. It goes back to the idea that people that don't have their basic needs, man, can't think about self-actualization and our activities. And voting to my family and the people around my town, it seemed like self-actualization to people that couldn't feed themselves, that were renting houses with no doors, that had holes in their floor, that had bathrooms that were outside, no running water. These are all political issues. So to believe that these people don't care about these things is wrong. It's that they're dealing with these things and trying to alleviate themselves from the situation, so much so that voting doesn't seem like an active way to relieve the pressure. So my childhood taught me a lot about voter suppression. It just didn't seem like a voter ID or counting sugar. I'm not saying that those things aren't real forms of voter suppression. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying we have a bigger form of voter suppression that we don't talk about in this country in the form of people not having their basic needs met. What do participation rates look like for Black men currently voting in America? So if you only consider the brothers who are registered to vote, never half of them haven't voted in five consecutive elections. Nearly half. And that's not a critique of Black men, right? That's a critique of how we play politics. When you consider this demographic, Black men have the shortest lives, are most likely to be over-sentenced or over-convicted, most likely to be expelled from school or suspended from school. And I can keep going on and on about the low social markers that Black men have. And like I said, those are all political issues. These are all issues also that creates the life that Black men are forced to live in this country that don't give them space to think about voting, especially when you present it to them the way it's presented to us now, i.e. meaning we show up, we being political folks show up two months before an election telling people that this is going to be the most important election of your life. This candidate is going to change every damn thing. None of that sounds real. That sounds like magic BS to people who are suffering in a real way. It doesn't make sense and it's not conducive to creating more voters. So we found out that, and this is the beauty of Black Male Voter Project, of that population, the half of brothers nearly have that have not voted in five or six consecutive elections. What we found out was they're human, which means if you listen to them and find out what's important to them and you create relationship with them, they vote just like other humans. And in some cases, they vote more than other humans. They vote more than demographics that are normally traditionally targeted. So we know that if you consistently are a part of Black men's experience, their space, then they show up to the polls. We saw this in Georgia, for instance, where we spent a lot of our resources last year. Georgia has about 1.1 million Black men registered to vote. Of those brothers who are registered to vote, 460,000 fall into this demographic that had not voted. Most of those brothers, sporadic voters, some of them were old enough to vote for Barack Obama and didn't vote. Not in 2008, not in 2012, and they didn't vote for Stacey Abrams in 2018. They didn't vote at all. But of that demographic, we spent a year targeting them, talking to them about their issues. First, listening in our conversations we call Brothers Be Voting, where it's just Black men in the room, and we have these conversations unfiltered with no cameras. And we heard they have political issues that they care about. Three of them, they kept popping up, defunding the police in the form of ending cash bail, in the form of 
ending qualified immunity. I'm sorry, brothers mm-hmm. don't say qualified immunity right out, but they think cops should be held responsible. Mm-hmm. And that is the nature of it. And then also putting trades back in school, which sounds like a public school issue, but it's not. It's actually a way to alleviate unemployment, the racist microaggressions that Black men suffer from in the office or in workplaces, and also addresses the reality that Black men don't get called back. And if they do, it's not to get the job, it's to tell them that they didn't get the job, right? Putting trades back to school, all of those issues came up repeatedly for Black men. And when you talk to Black men about those three issues, they vote. We were able to increase that population, that 460,000 sporadic voters. We turned 140,000 of that demographic out in the general election. 140,000. Biden didn't win the election by that number. So these are people who didn't vote for the first Black president. These are Black men that didn't vote for the first Black man president, but they came out and voted this cycle. And it's because we were targeting based on their issues, not a personality and not party loyalty. This is the way forward, not just for Black men. Our program is built on a platform that says you listen to people. You talk to them about those issues. You make your candidate fall in line with those issues and talk how they're going to address that issue. And then these people become responsive, especially if you show up consistently and not just in a time of an election talking about go vote as if that's the end all be all the people's problem. Deep canvassing. It's something that we put together for a bunch of the influencers. We put together a deep canvassing seminar, how to basically speak to voters through Surge, which I think is a really incredible organization doing some great work. You mentioned Georgia, and there's been a lot of talk over the past few years of Black women voters, and there's this narrative that they saved elections, particularly when it came to Doug Jones in 2018 in Alabama, and again in the Georgia elections this year. And you and I once had a conversation where you talked about Black men being erased by this narrative. Can you just tell the listeners about that and why you are so passionate about it? Yeah, first of all, let's say it is important that we're always speaking about what is reality and what's real if we are ever to duplicate it. If we're not funding what really wins elections, then we're going to be in trouble because we're only talking about part of the narrative and that's not how we did it. We actually did it by increasing participation from Black men as well, right? And if we're not talking about Black men going to the poll, Black men voting, Doug Jones didn't become senator in Alabama because of Black women alone. Black women absolutely had a role in it, but we can't erase the fact that 90-some percent of Black men also voted for Doug Jones. And when we say Black women saved the South and we exclude Black men, just add Black voters, right? Just say Black voters saved it. Black voters won Georgia. Black voters won Alabama for Doug Jones. The fact that the Democratic Party needs 90-plus percent of Black people to win elections because other demographics aren't voting for the Democratic Party with such loyalty, then it's prudent for those of us that want to continue to elect progressives to tell the truth about what actually wins elections. And Black men have a massive role in us winning the election as well, and we don't talk about that. The stunning epic victory for Jones and his party was largely a response to sexual misconduct allegations against Moore. But make no mistake, the outcome was also just the latest example of the political power of black voters, as well as the effectiveness of local activists who mobilized voting efforts and won. That for Black men 
is a continuation of the invisible way that Black men feel in politics. And that's not a vain thing. The idea that Democratic Party only speaks to Black women issues and not Black men is a huge problem that we saw at Black Men Voter Project for Black men coming into the space and also being more responsive to Democratic candidates or the party itself even. So we see these efforts that show up around elections like Barbara shot talk from the Democratic Party. It's trash. First of all, there's no shot talk where there are white people and women in barbershop. That's not how it works. You're not going to have a real conversation with Black men that way. To present something to TV called Shot Talk in that manner, you're literally redoing the damn movie that Cedric the Entertainer and Ice Cube already did. It's Hollywood. It's not real. And it's no shot at Hollywood since. I take shots at Hollywood plenty, <laughs> so don't, don't you worry about it. I also think the tragedy of erasing Black men in the narrative of what wins election it's dangerous for so many things. It's also rooted in, if you consider the fact that there's an amazing way for our oppressor or people who want to maintain the status quo to maintain the status quo, and it's to create a narrative that's not truly accurate, i.e. you can be a Black activist and not fight for trans rights, or you can be a Black activist and not care about anti-Semitic behavior, right? It's impossible to be progressive or care about progressive things if you're not fighting for uh, truth. And the truth of the matter is Black women didn't win this election by themselves. If we remove the 104,000 Black men that didn't vote for Barack Obama or Stacey Abrams in the election, then we don't have Georgia. Georgia's not blue. There are more than 104,000 Black men that voted, but I'm talking about the 140,000 that felt invisible that Black Male Voter Project made feel seen. We know this mm-hmm. to be true. We saw it in Jamal Bowman's race where we increased Black men's participation in New York where Black men don't normally vote in primaries in Kentucky, where Charles didn't win, but for the Democratic Party spending $40 million with the candidate that they chose, Booker only had about $2 million. So him coming that close for $2 million versus $40 million, and with the increase in Black men participation in that election, mm. they voted at rates higher than they did when Barack Obama ran. I'm just saying there's a way forward, and it's visibility. And it's it's so important if we are to expand the electorate in a way that allows us to win states like Mississippi, states like Alabama, states like Florida, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, et cetera, et cetera. Again, like I say, I remind people the BMEP approach to campaigning is not one that's solely based on black men because it's grounded in psychology. The lessons learned from Maslow that tells us if you don't have your basic needs met, you can't think about things that are self-actualization. So we need to figure out how we move voting from the top of that pyramid down to as a tool in the box of people that are struggling, living on the margins. And once we do that, when we do that, then these people see being a super voter, meaning vote every election, as a reason or something to consider to help them alleviate their stress, their problem, not as the candidate or the party being their savior. I just feel like in this world where there have been more than 200 laws introduced or passed in more than 40 states aimed specifically at making it harder to vote, Obviously, these laws will affect and impact black voters more than white voters. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how to beat this wave of electoral racism. I think the problem lies within the donor class. The donors listen to their political advisors. I'm talking about donors who support progressive ideas and issues and candidates. They only fund around elections. And that creates this transactional nature where organizers can be on the street, when organizers can be on the street. And it creates a gap in trust for people. If we're not able to service people's electoral mind all the time and not just around election cycles, then we're always started back from ground zero, flexing that muscle, having people work that muscle. So the cure 
for electoral racism is steady funding for organizations that are talking to these voters. Today, many are crediting Stacey Abrams with changing the makeup of Georgia voters by mobilizing people to register to vote. Her effort was born out of her 2018 failed gubernatorial campaign where she was narrowly defeated by Governor Kemp with less than a 2% margin. Well, since then, she's made it her mission to make sure Georgians recognize just how much their one vote matters. To give you a better picture, the Secretary of State's office says they saw more than 800,000 new voters registered since the 2016 general election. And nearly 575,000 of those came after the 2018 gubernatorial election. If we're having year-round conversations with black and brown voters all the time about what this law means and how it's going to change voting, it doesn't matter when election comes because they're already ready for it. They've already been primed and it's not a new conversation that they hear in the mix of all the political noise they'll hear next cycle or the following cycle. It's a part of their daily appetite. So I think the way to fix it is if we have the resources not going directly to the party, but to organizations that are servicing communities. It feels like we are so reactionary as not only a party, but even how we move within the party. And we focus so much on elections and right before elections, everything heats up. We do need sustained organizing right in these communities. So let's talk about what we need to do right now in 2021 to make sure black men can vote and want to vote in 2022 and 2024 and beyond. Yeah, for what we're doing, we're actually still engaging brothers in every way that we always do. We've already had more than 13 of our brothers be voting, meaning going to nightclubs, having conversations with Black men about what's important and what's happening, talking about those racist laws that you mentioned earlier, and also reminding them that there's a civic obligation that goes along with voting that happens before or after an election. And right now, this is what we're doing. We're texting brothers. We're preparing to canvas in certain states. We are also targeting brothers via social media and other ways. And we, of course, have the podcast, which is designed solely as a safe space for Black men politics. Black men is a, are a finicky group, meaning a well-meaning person can easily ruin a lot of good work being done. When the conversation is, your community needs this or Black men need this, it's almost as if you're doing disservice to us and our work because you're telling them something that they didn't tell you they need. And that is problematic for the work that we're trying to organize Black men. So we don't have a lot of space for volunteers. And when we do have volunteers, we train them up how to talk about Black men issues to their demographic. So if a group of white women wanted to canvas Black men, we would just say, hey, it's probably better if you canvas about Black men to women or another demographic, but not to Black men, because we train people in an intricate way to have these conversations so as to not look like it's transactional or it's party work. It's extremely important that people know that one mistake, even from a well-meaning person, can push brothers away from the ballot. And we don't want to do that at all. What we think is funding organizations that are trained or have been trained in talking to their communities that are on the margin as it pertains to voting is what's necessary in 2021 if we are to win 2022. What people forget is 2021, we spent the first part of 2021 as Democrats celebrating. I've seen everybody talking about what happened in 2020. Well, 2020 is gone electorally. And Republicans have not stopped at all. They, they are never busy. Stop. They're busy setting up themselves to win elections. And now we just saw this population shift because of the census. We're going to lose seats in Democrat spaces. California has not lost a seat in 170 years, and now they will. New York is losing a seat because 38 people, 38 people would allow them to keep a Congress seat. But we saw places that we know it's going to benefit Republicans pick up seats, i.e. probably in my home state in North Carolina, Texas will pick up a seat and other spaces like that. Michigan lost the seat. 
These are seats we can't afford to lose, but because Democrats are not organizing or not as organized in what they call off years, it's like the party literally takes that year off when we can't afford to. We should be organizing. We should be canvassing. We should be canvassing all the time. Unless, of course, you're one of those frozen states. Then you should be phone banking or texting. And they're about to take texting away. Texting the way we text last cycle will never yeah. be anymore. There's new legislation being proposed that's going to rip texting from us. So we're losing ways to reach voters. And we act as if we have the time to sit still and do it. I didn't know that. They're working on something that calls the nine-digit short code rule that's going to prevent you from being able to send as many messages as we sent last cycle. Well, mm-hmm. you know what? One person could sit down and send thousands of messages in a shift. It's going to be reduced to maybe 100. Wow. Tell my listeners how people can support Black Male Voter Project. First of all, you can follow us on social media at Black Male Voter Project everywhere. But I think the biggest thing is if people are truly concerned with racial justice, you have to look at Black men who suffer the most from police killing. Like I said, we have the shortest lives. And I think what's best for us, absolutely, we need resources. We are a C4 organization. We have a C3 organization. And we're launching code schools right now to teach Black men with felony convictions how to code and get them guaranteed income because we want to be a service agency as well. So yes, you can support us by resources, but what you can do is remind people that Black men are dying regularly because of our politics and participating in politics in a way that's progressive as an opportunity to save a Black man's life. So what we need people doing is talking about progressive policies and politics in a way that's beneficial to not just Black men, but all of us, but for sure Black men, because we are at the bottom of this thing called American society. So please go to social media, follow us there. But also don't forget that beyond the resources, talking about Black men and progressive politics is a damn sure a way that we consider, even if it's not directly supporting Black Men Voter Project, it definitely supports Black men lives. And finally, what gives you hope? Yesterday and the day before and the year before and all the way back to when there was slavery and people fighting it and realizing that I'm here in such a short period of time right now, having this conversation with you. It's hopeful knowing that progress is coming. It's on the way. And I might not see the end of it, but I've already seen it better than my dad did. Well, Mondale Robinson, you give me hope. Thank you so much. Thank thank you you. for being a part of the podcast and for all you do. New forms of voter suppression have replaced Jim Crow laws in some states. Gerrymandering, a political practice in which the boundaries of congressional districts are modified in highly partisan ways, has diluted voting power for people of color. Strict voting registration guidelines also make it difficult for people to sign up to vote. In 2013, a Supreme Court decision struck down a section of the Voting Rights Act, allowing states to enact discriminatory voter ID laws and voter purges. In Georgia, hundreds of polling stations in predominantly black and brown communities were closed ahead of the 2018 election, following a massive voter purge. While in Texas, new voter ID laws have made it more difficult for people of color and college students to vote. It really doesn't matter what Lindsey Graham says. It doesn't matter what the many racists screaming all lives matter in the faces of BLM protesters mean. It doesn't matter what racist governors and legislators in states like Iowa and Georgia say. Systemic racism is real in America. It's obvious. It's present. And it has to end. There is perhaps no group more demonized in our nation's dialogue than black men. The cost of this stigma is too high. For those of us who are not black men, imagine watching the news and seeing how people who look like you are portrayed. 
Imagine seeing men who look like you executed by police, arrested in impossibly high numbers, and seeing the entire political system of our nation fighting to keep it that way. Think about what effect that would have on you, about how you felt about this country and your participation in its institutions. It's a centuries-old problem, but we can't be centuries in the solution. We need to fix it now. We need to stop the efforts to make it harder for people of color to vote. We need to fix what we broke in America. And we need to do it now. Right now. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 